I have two passages that I want to draw your attention to. The first is Romans chapter 8, and then we'll turn to Philippians chapter 1. But first of all, Romans chapter 8, we've already read some of these things from here. Last week we considered the great theme of justification, part of the Reformation. And this morning again I want to draw our attention to some of the things uh, that the Reformation brings to us, certainly from uh, Romans chapter 8. So to live is, and to die is. So Romans chapter 8, and we will read from verse 28 through verse 30. It's really verse 30 that we will consider together, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Well-known verses to us, I think. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And then if you'll turn to Philippians chapter 1, and just that one verse, verse 21, Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. One of those short verses in the Bible, yet so profound, right? Means so much. So, verse 21, uh, Philippians chapter 1, For to me, to my advantage, right? To me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. May God bless to us the reading of His Word. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we draw near this morning because we are so utterly, completely dependent upon You as our God to provide for us, to provide all things for us, to care for us, to love us. We would cast ourselves completely upon Your grace and Your mercy. We depend upon you, God. You are the living and the true God. You are the sovereign God. We are humbled by such verses, by the things that we have sung this morning, the great themes of redemption, and humbled by your word as we've read it. Now we pray that the Holy Spirit would take of the things of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by his might and by his power, reveal them to us that we might revel in them Rejoice in them and be filled with this living hope and joy that you've called us to. We praise you, we adore you, we worship you, and we ask these things in the holy name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. There are two things that stand out in these verses before us. You will notice if you look at, for instance, Philippians chapter 1, and verse 21, that in that verse, the Apostle Paul uh, simply in just a few words unpacks, unfolds his purpose for living. He gives his reason for life. And that reason or that purpose is nothing less and nothing more than the person of Christ. 
In other words, if you were to ask the Apostle Paul to sum up his Christian life, he wouldn't describe it in the things that he must do or that he has to do, but he would describe it, I think, like he has in Philippians chapter 1, that he has in this life Christ, and if he were to die, he would have Christ. That is gain. And so the Apostle Paul, when he talks about the aim or the goal of why he lives, it is nothing less than the Son of God who loved him and who gave himself for him. So, for to me, for my benefit, for my advantage, to live is nothing less than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think in a very brief word, that's Philippians chapter 1 verse 21. Secondly, in Romans chapter 8, and this verse, verse 30 that we read, what the apostle does is that he takes everything that lies behind. Philippians chapter 1. Whatever Paul expresses by and in Philippians chapter 1, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, everything behind that is found in Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. In fact, Romans chapter 8, verse 30, I dare say, is that which motivates the Apostle Paul to do what he does and to live the way he does. He is so amazed, isn't he, that all things work together for good to those who love God. He's so amazed later on in the chapter that the love of Christ and the love of God, nothing can separate him from that. And that is just beyond him, I think. He, he just rejoices in such Tremendous biblical truth. Love of God in Christ for him. Such a sinful man. Such a wicked sinner as Saul of Tarsus. And now look at him. Changed. Transformed. Different. Converted. Saved. Born again. Regenerated. Think of any word you like. His life is completely the opposite of what it was. Or to put it as we would say ourselves, he is a Christian. He's a believer, isn't he? And behind the fact that the Apostle Paul is a Christian are the great truths that the Apostle Paul uh, unfolds for us right here in Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. Everything that motivates him, that drives him to do what he does and be what he is, brings him to the point of saying that for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 11, he makes this startling claim. He says that Christ Jesus has made me his own. What does that mean? That means I belong to Jesus. I belong to Christ. I belong to the Lord. Don't belong to myself. I don't live for myself. For me to live, he says, is Christ. Because Christ has made me his. Isn't that the essence of what you are as a Christian? Jesus has made you His. And now, in response to that great work, you live out for Him because of what, he, because of what God has done. The Apostle Paul, I think, never got far from reminding himself that he belonged to Christ, that he was redeemed by Christ, that he was purchased with the blood of the Lamb, that he was a person who was consumed with none other than the Son of God Himself. Romans chapter 8 is really regarded as one of those 
magnificent theological statements, isn't it? Foundational statements to the Christian faith. And yet it is a, a section of Scripture that is glossed over, that is poorly understood, that is, sad to say, often rejected when you get down into the details of Romans chapter 8. Because everything about Romans chapter 8 is all of God and nothing of man. Nothing of Paul, the apostle, but everything of God. And this is what we acknowledge and this is what we confess. This is the great uh, outworking of the Reformation truth, isn't it? That God is absolutely sovereign and that God determines all that He pleases and God saves sinners by grace only, through faith only, through Christ only, revealed in the Scriptures only, to the glory of God only. That's this, that's this theological foundation that the Apostle Paul gives for his own life. And I would like to pray and hope that it's the theological undergirding, underpinning of my existence as a Christian and of your existence as a Christian. Romans chapter 8 verse 30 is referred to theologically as the Ordo Salutis. What do we mean by that? It's a Latin phrase. It simply means the order of salvation. Romans chapter 8 is, verse 30 is the order of salvation. When Jesus died on the cross, behind Jesus dying on the cross is the work of God. The sovereign work of God. Not able to be interfered with by man in any way whatsoever. Determined by God and then unfolded by God in human history. When the time was right, Galatians 4, God sent forth His Son. When the time was right, God's time, Jesus came. And behind the coming of Jesus are these incredible doctrinal truths that every Christian needs to learn and every Christian needs to live their Christian life in the light of them. That's what Paul, I think, is doing. One of the standout recovery features of the Reformation was nothing less, I think, than a fresh appreciation of the sovereign work of God in our salvation. I mean, what did it take for God to save us? It's not just Jesus dying on the cross, but it's the entire work of God derived by God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in time, eternal, that comes to fruition in time, that lasts to eternal life to come in the future. And this is what we want to consider this morning. I want to be a little theological with you. This is nothing less than a repudiation of the ancient heresy of Pelagianism. That what we discover in the Reformation 500 years ago is a recovery of the gospel, is a repudiation of this doctrine of Pelagius that goes back to the 300s and the 400s, the time of Augustine. A repudiation because it's a heresy that men are capable of saving themselves by their own will. That's nothing less than false. And yet, I dare say, in evangelical churches across the world, that is the doctrine that is preached and promoted that men are capable of saving themselves in some way or in some form, or of assisting God in the, in the salvation process. 
And the Pelagians, of course, went further than just talking about the fact that man is capable or able to believe, but they denied the doctrine of original sin, and they died, denied, denied, sorry, and denied also the doctrine of total depravity and total inability. These are Reformation truths, but the Pelagians denied them. So the Reformation, which we next week will kind of celebrate, remind ourselves of, the Reformation is simply a reassertion of Augustinian theology. And what do I mean by Augustinian theology? I simply mean that God saves sinners by His grace. That's all. God saves sovereignly His people. They can never perish. They can never lose their salvation. They are safe in Christ. Christ purchased them with His blood. They are secure forever and forever. And their salvation, which is sovereignly by grace only, is therefore never by works, and never by law, and never by nature, and certainly never by choice. It's all of God. In fact, if you read Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, you tell me where you do anything in those verses. Which, by the way, end in verse 30 with our glorification. Tell me anywhere in those verses where you contribute anything to what God says He has done on our behalf. The answer is you cannot. Because we're not there. We're not involved. This is the ordo salutis. This is the order of salvation. So coming out of the Reformation period, a doctrine, by the way, which we affirm this morning is that we deny any cooperation and any collaboration on the part of any human being in the saving work of the living God. That God, if He saves anybody, saves them because He loves them and because of His grace toward them. The second generation after the Reformers once again had to fight for this kind of thinking in dealing with the Arminian Pelagian heresy of the 1600s uh, and going on from there. Uh, and so the Canons of Dort, which are a remarkable document, which you should get a hold of and read, which give you the affirmations for biblical truth and the denial of heresies, you should read those Canons of Dort because they clarified the old issues of Pelagius and they eliminated Pelagian and Arminian thinking from the Gospel. Because it was a hindrance to the gospel. Anytime you, you ask for my cooperation in the gospel, you hinder the gospel. You limit the gospel. So the moment I am asked or said that my faith is the factor that determines whether I'm saved or not, therefore the final matter is my believing, if that is true, then it is not God who finally saves you, but you who finally save yourself. Now, I don't think any Christian believes that really down in their hearts. They know that it's Jesus who saved them. Jesus who saves. I mean, these are the kind of things we sing in choruses, don't we? So, we are very much as a church, as you know, we are big on Augustinian theology. We are big on Calvin theology. Big on Reformation theology. That's just the facts. Not because they in and of themselves demand that we therefore subscribe to them, but because we believe they are scriptural. 
and biblical. And isn't that the final determining issue that you and I have to determine what is biblical? What do the scriptures say about salvation? Is it man's work? Or is it God's work? Or is it a cooperation, a blending of what God has done or what man has done? I'd like to suggest you just have simply, uh, always in church history, just two opposing factions, two uh, simple statements. One is of soteriology. One is that it is man-centered. Therefore, it is naturalistic. It's of man. And the other is that it is God-centered. And therefore, it is supernatural. We believe, do we not, that we are saved by faith, by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves, meaning the faith part, the grace part, are not of ourselves. It is, Paul says, Ephesians 2.8, the gift of God. We believe that. We confess that. And if you confess that and believe that, you eliminate all naturalistic thinking in uh, the determination of who is saved and who is not. Sad to say, I think that we once again find ourselves, here we are, 2,000 years on, still fighting, contending, determining that this is the biblical means whereby God saves sinners. And I can think of no better passage than Romans chapter 8 to unfold that, and then Philippians chapter 1 to just describe the consequences of Romans chapter 8 for any Christian. No matter who they are, no matter how old they are or how young they are. It is important to contend for doctrine. I've said that numerous times. The reason it's important to contend for doctrine because you're really contending for God. Who God is. What God is like. What God has done. Who Jesus is. What Jesus has done who the Holy Spirit is, and what the Holy Spirit has done and is doing in saving us and our salvation. We either are going to believe this morning that man has the power to save himself or that man cooperates, no matter what degree, but that man cooperates in some form or another because it depends on his choice of God or Jesus. Or to put it this way, that kind of theology is if you are willing you may be saved. If you are willing, you may be saved by your will. Well, those ideas we reject. We've always rejected them. Because we confess and we believe in a sovereign God who by His sovereign power and according to His sovereign love and mercy and grace saves us. Because He is willing to save sinners. Doesn't have to. But He does. Doesn't He? By grace. And that's all because, God does that, all because of His love for sinners and of His grace towards sinners. In other words, we simply hold to the absolute, the, 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 the doctrine or the statement of the absolute divine sovereignty of God in His saving will and purposes. In my opinion, and I think in yours, nothing could be more plainer than that in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. Because it is ultimately, isn't it, a question of who saves? Who saves you? Who saves me? So, let me take you through Romans chapter 8, verse 30. I want you to notice, first of all, wow. The first thing you're exposed to in Romans 8, verse 30 is this big word, predestination. Right? And notice what, what Paul says, verse 30, and 
those whom he predestined. Those whom he predestined. So notice, first of all, here are people. Those. Those whom. Here are people who are part of this predestination. Those whom he predestined. Notice that here is God. Those whom he, God, predestined. This is not the predestination of man. It's not the predestination of me or you because you decided that you would like to be saved. Sounds like a good idea. I think I'll choose Jesus. Not because of that. No, it says those whom He, God, predestined. And so here's what God has done. God has simply, in the order of salvation, number one, He has predestined in verse 30. Well, that's pretty big, isn't it? Secondly, consider the word those. That's a small little word, but it's very important. Look at verses 28 through 30. So verse 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, those who love God, and then also, end of verse 28, for those who are called according to His purpose. Those who are called. Then look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And then if you go to verse 30, why, it just appears over and over again, doesn't it? Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And you may assume that those who are predestined and those who are called and those who are justified are the same as those who are glorified, right? Same. You will notice also in verse 29 that God's foreknowledge, big word, foreordination, God's foreknowledge stands behind God's predestination. Because look what he says, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So now they go together, don't they? They belong together. But the question is, what is the difference between foreknowledge and between predestination. There's a false idea out there about foreknowledge. Well, it's, it's, not, it's false when it eliminates the true meaning of foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is simply the distinguishing love of God whereby election takes place. Foreknowledge, it's not simply knowing ahead of time, because God knows everything ahead of time. It's not that. It's not what we mean. That's not what we mean by foreknowledge in the Bible. It focuses attention on the distinguishing love that God has for people, so much so that He chose them. He also predestined. Those whom He foreknew, loved in such a way as this, He predestined those. Well, what does foreknowledge refer to? Foreknowledge refers to relationship. Not knowledge ahead of time, but relationship. That's foreknowledge. That's the first thing. We'll come back to some of that. Secondly, What's predestination mean? Oh, you know, many Christians they don't like these words. Okay, and I know we should stay away from that because that's theological or that's biblical. That's too deep. Really? You want to be a baby Christian all your life? Or do you really want to interact with God's Word and try to understand what God says from His Word that is so beautiful? Well, I know what I'm going to choose. Right? I don't want to be a baby all my life. I don't want to drink milk all my life. I want some... Some real steak. Meat, right? That's what I want. 
What is predestination? Well, predestination gives us the destiny of those that are loved because they're foreknown. So it's pointing not now to relationship, that's foreknowledge, but predestination points to the end, to the destiny, to the goal that God has determined, that God has purposed. The reason we have predestination is because we have foreknowledge. In other words, if you're going to trace everything back in the purposes and plan of God, you come back to the fact not only that God is God, but that that God loved and chose as a result of loving. So God's determination, His purpose, His end, is due to the fact that He knows people intimately, His people. Not simply knowing ahead of time, but knowing them in a loving relationship. This is the word, by the way, the word know that is used of Adam and Eve. Adam knew his wife and she conceived. An intimate relationship, right? He knew his wife. It's just simply the word that points to a physical sexual relationship. It's the word that God uses in his commission of Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5. Before you were formed in the womb, I knew you, Jeremiah. Before, before a conception, your conception even took place, I knew you. I loved you. It's the word that's used in Amos chapter 3 and verse 2 to describe God's relationship to, to Israel. You only of all the nations have I loved or known. Why, God knows all the nations, doesn't he? Of course he does, but not like he knew Israel. That was a loving relationship. The Gentiles, all the other nations, known by God, yes, but not known in a loving relationship, a covenant relationship. Now, the next thing you should think about is both those words, foreknowledge and predestination, have the prepositional prefix, the Greek prepositional prefix pro, which simply means before, before, right? So, which connects both of them, right? Both of them to being of one eternal purpose. That the foreknowledge of God and the predestination of God have one purpose in the end. To bring those whom God foreknew and predestined to their glorification. That's the end. That's the goal. That's the purpose. One eternal purpose. Or to put it another way, foreknowledge and predestination are the the work of God before Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. Because in Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created. Behind that, before that, in eternity, not in time, but before that, outside of time, stands the foreknowledge and the predestination of God. We call that a pre-creation work of God. But our calling... Our justification and our glorification, we call that post-creation work. They can only be a post-creation work because of the pre-creation work of God. So my calling, my justification, my glorification is completely dependent upon God's foreknowledge and God's predestination of us, of me, of you. So, being called, being justified, being glorified, they're just simply the results of God's pre-creation work of foreknowledge, loving intimately, and of predestin predestinating, having a purpose with a goal towards the end. 
So notice how this works out practically today, right now, right? Verse 28. Those who love God, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And then qualifying phrase, look at verse 28, end of verse 28, <clears throat> for those who are called according to his purpose. Those who love God are those who are called according to his purpose, and what do they know? They know that all things work together for good, for their good. We sang some of that theology in our hymns this morning. But more than that, those who love God, verse 28, are the same people, in verse 28, who are called according to his purpose. So those who love God in time, like you and me now, this morning, those who love God in time are the same people that God loved and called before time began by predestination. You say, wow. Well, yeah, wow is right. Because you would never have come up with that kind of stuff yourself. Ever. Right? No, what does man do in trying to approach God? He conceives of a God of his own making. He becomes an idolater. He has some knowledge within him because he's created in the image of God, knowledge of God in this image that is so defiled and so debased that he now conceives of a God that pleases him, a God of his making. Haven't you always found it so strange that, as God talks about in the prophets, that, that men and women make gods out of wood? fashion it, and then they bow down to it and talk to it as if it can talk back to them. And then the part that is left over, the, the wood cuttings that are there, that they haven't used, they put in the fire to cook their meal or whatever it is, to warm their bodies. One is used to worship and the other is used to, for food or whatever they need. That's what they think of their gods. And they really think they're God. Because that's what they have conceived in their mind as being worthy of worship. That is not what we find in the Bible, right? Now, here's a big one. Those who love God, pray that's all of you this morning, those who love God, in verse 29, they are the same people who are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Do you notice verse 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Why did God foreknow, and why did God choose, and why did God elect? So that those whom he did that for would be like Jesus. And who are the ones who are like Jesus? They are the ones who love God. Same people. Same calling, same purpose. Same people. You could say this morning, and I think we'd be right to say this, that the great biblical and theological aim of any Christian is that we be conformed to the image of Christ. That's the big thing. Isn't that what Paul means by, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what he means by that, right? Surely he means that to Live as Christ is to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. Doesn't he even say in Philippians, right, that I may be like him? That I might become like him in his death? 
conformed to Him, conformed to His image in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. So the practical outworking of the fact that you are being conformed to the likeness or the image of Christ is nothing less than that you love God practically because you know that all things work together for your good. Again, you could never have come up with that. This is all of God's doing. Isn't it how sovereign God is? And what does it mean to be, verse 29, to be conformed to the image of Christ? What does that really mean? That's nothing less than the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in your life, isn't it? I mean, we believe in daily progressive sanctification. The work of the Spirit ongoing since we are initially justified and sanctified, and from that the fruit of our justification and initial sanctification is an ongoing practice of holiness of loving Christ and of loving God. This is how you know a Christian from a non-Christian. By their fruit you know them. What kind of fruit? At least they love Christ. At least they love God. That's the very foundation of it, right? So, being conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ is this powerful, sovereign, sanctifying work of the Spirit that is worked in and worked out in my life day by day in all the events of my life. Just as we've been, I've been preaching on Sunday evenings from Esther, so that God's providential work is the fruit of God's purposes. Whatever God has purposed works out in life for all things, all creatures, everything. And He maintains and sustains all things. Jesus does by His powerful Word. By His Word. Well, when I, when I think like that, when I read that, I just don't see Rasat more in there, determining anything, choosing any of that. No, I just read that God has done this for me. We can simply say then that, that, that this is the work of God. Verse 28, this is God. Notice, it's God. We know that for those who love God, all things work together. Who's working the all things together? That's God, not me. It's God working all things together for those who love Him. And notice... Verse 28, that those who are called according to His purpose, so it's God and His purpose in verse 28. Then you get to verse 29, and it's God's foreknowledge and God's predestination. And you get to verse 30, and it's God's predestination and God's calling and God's justification and God's glorification. By the way, all four verbs, predestined, called, justified, glorified, are what we refer to as aorist, Active indicatives. What does that mean? It means God has done something and it has occurred and it continues to occur with real-time benefits. So my justification, my calling, my glorification are real-time benefits, consequences today that can be enjoyed and experienced. By the way, <clears throat> that's why our glorification, which we actually haven't actually experienced is spoken of as actually having happened it's just as certain as if I was called justified predestined also and I will be glorified it's the same it's gonna happen justification has happened calling has happened my glorification is as certain to happen as those two how safe are you in Christ 
You can never fall from Christ if you're in Christ, right? So this is how I know this is not only God's work, but how certain God's work is for me. Now, you know, if I didn't believe that, any of that, what could I be certain of? Well, I suppose I could be certain that today I feel good, but tomorrow I might not be so good. Or I might put it this way, right, like the Arminian daisy is, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. My experience! Okay, because tomorrow I might feel terrible and not inclined to spiritual things, but I'll tell you one thing, that when I'm not inclined to spiritual things, Jesus comes right alongside. And he says, I'm here. I'm with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Never. You believe that word? Never. Even though I don't feel like it. You see, your Christianity is not a feeling. It's faith in the Son of God who loved us and who gave Himself for us. That's the gospel, right? How can it be anything other than that? Not only that, but all of these actions that I read here in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, you'll notice that they reflect a sequential order. That's why they talk about the ordo salutis, right? So you go from one to the next. You go from predestination to calling, to justifying, to glorify. You can't miss it. But you really go from, don't you, foreknowledge, predestination, the pre-creative activity of God, the result, the fruit of that is post-creation, my calling, my justification, my glorification. So that all of this is an order determined by God and therefore is activated only by God. I can't change the order. I can't affect the order. God forbid that I ignore the order. This is for my benefit, for yours. So notice these post-creation things, because they're big, right, in Reformation thinking. Calling, justification, and glorification. All the fruit, right, of God's pre-creation work, His foreknowing of us, and His predestining of us. Now, you're going to find exactly this same kind of stuff in Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And we'll begin to read in verse 3. So go to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1. And let's just note verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Notice that only God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, even as He chose us in Him, Christ, before the foundation of the world. So when did election take place? Before the foundation of the world. For what purpose? Look what he says. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. You know what that is? That's being conformed to the image of Jesus. To be holy and blameless is the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit today, tomorrow in your life. So God chose us that we should be holy and blameless. He didn't choose you so you can just say, well, I'm going to heaven. 
Now, he chose you so that now, in time, you can be a holy person and a blameless person. And this is the sanctifying, sovereign sanctifying work of God the Holy Spirit, conforming us by transforming us through the word, through the means, to be like his son. In love, verse 4, end of verse 4, verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. So he chose us to be children through Jesus, according to the purpose of his will. How did he do it? By his purpose, right? To the praise of his glorious grace. Because if you were to come away from that kind of statement and say, well, okay, so what? You've missed it, right? It's all to the praise of God's glorious grace because it's all by grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved, Christ Himself. Look at verse 7. In Him, that's in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us, His grace, in all wisdom and insight. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose. Notice, according to His purpose again and again which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, so much so that in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Notice you have an inheritance according to the predestination of God, and in this time, in this day and age, right now, you have been given the Holy Spirit who is said to be the guarantee of that inheritance until you actually acquire possession. You already have it, it's yours, but you will actually enter into the glorious inheritance of the promises of God, which are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ in the days to come, to the praise of His glory and His grace. Isn't it marvelous, really, when you think about it? We have been predestined according to the purpose of God, who works all things according to the counsel of His own will. Ephesians 1.11 And I, for one, I confess to you this morning, I, for one, am, I'm very happy that my salvation is in God and not in myself. I, in fact, I'm going to praise him, right, for his love and for his mercy and for his grace to me, a great sinner, the chief of sinners, that he actually saved me when I deserved his wrath. But according to his love and out of his love, this purpose of his to save me by giving his son and to hold nothing back in giving Jesus for us, but to pour out his wrath upon Jesus because he loved me. So that the cross becomes the scene of judgment and the scene of the love of God for me. Doesn't the Christian always go back to the cross, to the cross, to the cross? To remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us. Now, the only response you have and I have, I think, is to glorify him. To say, thank you, Lord. To praise him, right? So that leads to this outworking now. Number one, we ought to thank God for his predestination or his election. 
It's not a word to be to cower under or to be afraid of. The Apostle Paul just throws it out there over and over again. Why can't I? Why can't you? Why can't we thank God for His sovereign election? I mean, listen to Ephesians 1 verse 4. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Or, when Paul writes to the Thessalonians, this is what he says in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now you know, favorite objection in all of this, our well, God's unfair, well, God's unjust to lavish His love on certain individuals and not on others. Really? Really? How can God be unjust when all should perish? It's only mercy that He has that says, No, I love these. I, I, I choose these because I love them. Why God loves them is in the counsels of God. The mystery of who God is. And all I know is God can do as He pleases. Not only can He do as He pleases, but God always does as He pleases. That's why He's sovereign, right? So, nobody's going to be able to charge God with injustice. I mean, that's Romans 8.33, right? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's a rhetorical question. Answer, no one. It is God who justifies. And listen, dear beloved, if God is for us, who can be against us? Right? If God is for His people because He loves His people, who can stand against His people? Isn't this the very thought, the love of God in Christ Jesus, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, that would give the Apostle Paul some comfort writing the Philippians, in prison, chained, in the dark, wondering about the future? No, what's Paul doing? He's rejoicing. He's praising God. He's thanking God. And he tells the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord, always. Again I say to you, rejoice. And isn't that what we read in 1 Peter is all about suffering, our sufferings, the hope that we have. Now, we ought to thank God for his election. It's precious. It's the root and foundation, it's the expression of his love. Number two, well, we ought to thank God for his calling, right? What is calling? Calling is a sovereign, irresistible work of the Spirit which effectually brings us to Jesus Christ. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, sovereignly, who brings us, who draws us to Jesus Christ. There are two calls in the Bible. The first call is a general call. You hear it this morning. Come to Jesus. That's a general call. But that won't save you. It's the effectual call, the special call, the sovereign call of the Holy Spirit that gets you, draws you irresistibly to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. That's why Jesus said in John 6.44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Did you get it? No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Did you know that behind John 6.44 stands John 6.37? All that the Father gives me, election, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
Well, think about this one. 2 Timothy 1 verse 9. Maybe one of the greatest verses in the Bible. He saved us and called us, Paul says, to a holy calling. That's to be conformed to the image of His Son. So He saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Your salvation was certain. And in time, Jesus secured it through His redeeming work on the cross. And then the Holy Spirit applies that redemption secured by Jesus to you. And it's all of grace, according to the counsel of the will of God. It's beautiful, isn't it? Well, what does the Holy Spirit do when He calls someone to salvation? Number one, He convinces them of their sin and their misery. He shows them, you're guilty. You're, you're undone. You are ruined by your sin. You can't get out of it. He shows us that. He convinces us of our sin and misery. Number two, He enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ. He shows us Jesus. And we receive Him. We embrace Him. We take Christ. He renews, thirdly, our wills. In other words, He changes your inclination. You desire Christ. You want Christ. You want these things. And number four, he persuades and he enables us to embrace Christ as he has offered to us in the gospel. You take him. It's the Spirit that does that work sovereignly within us. That's why Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, says, It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So now I can, I can conclude... That just as my election is a sovereign work of God, so too is my calling. Just as my election, which is a pre-creation work, now my calling, which is a post-creation work, is also sovereign. It's by the Spirit. It's an effectual work. And when the Lord called me and you, Ephesians 2.1 tells me that we were dead in trespasses and sins. Dead. No spiritual life. But those who were dead in trespasses and sins, God being rich in mercy, with the great love with which He loved us, made us alive in Christ. By grace you are saved. Think about it. This plan, this glorious purpose. It's no wonder the reformers were rejoicing in such a gospel. Because it was hidden in the churches of their time. It just wasn't shared. It was all about works or indulgences, or pay your money, or buy this image, say these many prayers, and maybe God will accept you, and you'll have to do penance for a thousand years, whatever it is, no gospel, darkness, right? But when the gospel comes in its power, light floods in, floods in our souls, and we see the truth, and we believe it. Number three, we ought to thank God for His justification, right? Last week we talked a little bit about that. But justification, enabling us to be right with Him by imputing the righteousness of Jesus to us. He gives us faith to receive and faith to believe this Lord Jesus who died on the cross. So much so that we have been justified by faith and the result is Romans 5.1, we have peace with God. Because God has justified us. And justification is rooted in predestination. But you should not think that justification is eternal justification. No, we're not justified in eternity past. We are justified in time. Because you have to have faith. We're justified by faith. 
So Jesus, according to Paul, rose from the dead for our justification. He was delivered up for our trespasses and He was raised for our justification. To guarantee that you would be justified, Jesus rises from the dead. Romans 4.25 So, we have been justified by the grace of God and not by the works of the law. Romans 3.20 Number four, you should thank God for your glorification, which by the way, you haven't experienced, but you will. It's as certain as your calling and justification, and it's as certain as the foreknowledge and predestination of God. So we should thank God for our glorification because, because in between our justification and our glorification is our sanctification, which Paul doesn't talk about here in Romans 8. He talks about it in Romans 6 and Romans 7. But between justification and glorification is sanctification. This daily working out our lives in conformity to the work and the purposes of God, we are being conformed to the image of Christ. What does it mean to be conformed to the image of Christ? God enables us more and more to die to sin and enables us to live more and more unto righteousness. That's progressive sanctification. And sanctification must be progressive. It must be increasing. Ah, uh, you know what I come out of this? I can never lose Jesus. I can never lose Him. He's mine, right? I can never fall away because God preserves me by these things that He is, according to His purpose and will, He preserves me so that I persevere in my faith. To be glorified is simply to be blessed in both body and soul and to enjoy God forever and forever. What a change that will be, right? We will be transformed into the likeness and the image of God's Son when Jesus comes for us. You know, these are the truths of the Reformation. I, I, I think those are glorious truths. If, if a Christian doesn't think anywhere of these kinds of things, what are they thinking of? What are they thinking of? This is why Calvin says, Let us exercise ourselves in constant meditation upon the favors of God which He confers upon us, that, that we may in, be encouraged and confirmed in our hope as to the time to come. I need a lot of help today, tomorrow, to live for Jesus. Thank God I have the Holy Spirit to help me, to sanctify me. Thank God I have the Word of God, right? That I can read and meditate on. This is the means. I can pray. The means whereby I have relationship with God and He with me. So what do we discover in Romans 8? Here is a salvation that is devised by God. Here is a salvation that is designed by God with two ends. The first end, His glory is achieved, God is exalted, and number two, His grace is received by us, we are saved. Don't we sing sometimes how good and gracious God is to save us? And He has done so, right? To bring us to Himself. So the Reformation and these truths simply showed that we must never go to man for salvation, never go to the confessional, because no man can forgive your sins except Jesus Never go to the priest, because Jesus is the high priest. I don't need anything man-made. I need Christ to save me by His grace. Okay, so what's the result of being a Christian? Isn't that what Paul says? For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain, right? 
Do you know that in verse 20 of Philippians chapter 1, Paul says that it is his ambition to honor Jesus, whether it's by his life or by his death. That's his ambition, to honor Christ. To live was to have his life and his work as an apostle wrapped up in Christ. And I dare say, dear congregation, all of us have different work. Is your work wrapped up in Christ? Your life wrapped up in Christ? Because listen, when you go to work, you still live for Christ. Can't get away from it. Can't divide your Christian life. It's who we are. In who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Thank God the Son of God loved us and gave himself for us. But to die, which we're all fearful of, naturally speaking. But Jesus came to take away the fear of death by destroying him who had the power of death, right? That is the devil. To free us, to give us life. So to die is actually not the end at all, but simply life abundant with Jesus Christ. One thing I know about death is it's sudden. Some people, you can expect death. You see death coming. They have disease or they're old and aged. and So you know death is coming, but God can strike any man down in the flower of his youth or woman in the flower of her youth. Take them like that. The real issue is, are we ready to die? Praise God. It would be the realization to die. It would be the realization of being conformed to the likeness of Jesus. That's what death is. The realization that I'm like Christ. I shall see him as he is, and I shall be like him, John says. Right? 1 John 3. So the end of the ordo salutis is that we may have Christ now and forever. Well, you see, beloved, what a great salvation you have. What a great salvation I have here today. We possess Christ because Christ possesses us. We are His. But in glory, we shall be like Him. And isn't that the desperate desire of our hearts now, today, to be like Him, to be conformed to His image? And to be like the Savior is surely to the praise of the glorious grace of God and the glory of God. That's why Calvin could say, only Christ, only Christ makes us happy in life and in death. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. These glorious truths which are so precious to us. Help us to delight in them to meditate deeply in them, to think on them, to thank you for them. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, he who loved us and gave himself for us. We thank you for his suffering on the cross in our place that we might have life. So we praise you and we worship you this morning for Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would change us and conform us to your likeness and to your image day by day. Thank you for these glorious truths that we've thought about this morning. And help us, we pray, to think on them further as the week goes by. Now we commit ourselves to you and worship you and praise you. Ask all of these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. If you'll take your bulletin.